Can I just ask, though, do you believe this? The gospel story of Martha and Mary is a feisty one. Can I just ask, though, a question that goes to us as well as to those two amazing women, Martha and Mary. They're written before Jesus' death by a great act of violence. And these two sisters who sometimes didn't get along, I wonder if Father Luis and Rosalina had something in common with them. <laughs> Martha was a hard worker. Mary sat at the feet of the Lord and listened with his guests and the disciples uh, to the rabbi of Nazareth. Martha cooked, fed them, cleaned up for those who wanted to hear, broke down the doors to get in. Jesus traveled in some of the highest circles as a healer, cast her out of demons and a teacher, and Mary listened to him with the other disciples. Lazarus, her brother, gets unexpectedly ill, and they call for Jesus to come, and he's late. Father Luis had amazing time management skills. Unlike him, I don't have it, and late is what I often find myself in, and they're traumatized when he arrives. A wound to the soul, not just harmed, but traumatized. Jesus arrived, and Martha's fighting mad, and heads down the road to say her peace, even before Jesus arrives on the scene. I'm crafting this in my own brain, but I like the way it turns out. Jesus invites her to an incredible epiphany about life. Like a Buddhist koan, a question you're supposed to chew on for a long, long, long time until you get an answer. Do you believe this? Do you really believe this? That God can pull it off. That death can come from life. That good can come from immense violence. And Martha's response, I think she had a pause, a long one. Finally, she says, I have come to believe, little by little by little, that there are some things in life that really count. That the universe is friendly, as Einstein liked to say. And that you are its mirror, the Messiah, the child of the one to come. Father Luis was with his family and our brothers, an amazing uh, prophet and holy man. But at the time of death, he wrestled with that question. And I thought, as getting to know him, he really wrestled with it for his whole life. As he was dying, he kept asking a question that, that all of us in the room heard. Uh, is, is this the process? He kept asking. And uh, I wanted to answer him, yes, Father, it is, but he wasn't talking to me. Another presence filled the room. And his passion over those three weeks had some amazing moments of grace. Some angels showed up, sent with amazing synchronicity, his sister Rosalina to watch over him. And Franciscan Sister Antoinette was his dying coach. She showed up and just walked him through all of the moments of that letting go. And Monsignor Tony Sotelo showed up to hear his confession and to, and to give him viaticum. And then a beautiful nurse showed up, nameless. Uh, and she asked him, Father, are you in pain? And for an old celibate, Father Luis loved women, beautiful women particularly. But pain, he often said that he didn't feel any. He often told me that he had high tolerance for pain. Are you? He always say, fine, fine. I wonder if he just had a high tolerance for pain. Or I often wondered, as his guardian, if he just kept it to himself and he dealt with it in his own solitude. Maybe his pain is what he presented as a gift to that presence that he was speaking to. But back to the question from that beautiful young nurse, are you in pain? And his answer was only moral pain. We thought about it for hours afterwards. <laughs> There's a detail in the first reading of From Wisdom that always catches my eye. At the time of their visitation, they shall shine and dart about like stars, like sparks among the stubble. That's campfire language. It's sitting in front of a fire, or fireplace, watching for hours. Your attention just grabbed by the, the fire bouncing around. The quality of relationships with others, their compassion, service, and concern about the details of other people's lives also catches our attention. And we want some for ourselves. Father Luis had that gracious gift. He'd been in retirement here at St. Mary's since I arrived in 2014. But his view from retirement was an amazing gift to the church and to us, and to me personally. His sunset was a beautiful one. In 97 years, that's quite a sunset. And it makes even more lovely his previous years of adventures and challenges. I asked um, uh, Sister Rosalina a number of years ago to describe her brother, and she said Luis is an old-time Franciscan. Remember saying that? He's an old-time Franciscan. He's a product of a rigorous, observant Franciscan spirituality of the present moment, with his eye open every day to the coming of the Lord. His was practical and compassionate, waste not, attentive to what needs to be done right now, and always with his eyes set on the God who is still coming. I went down early in the morning after I arrived here in 2014, and Luis was at the breakfast table alone. And I sat down and I moaned to him, I, uh, I want to talk to, to our provincial minister, John Harden, because I don't know why I'm here. And uh, he looked up and answered kind of curtly, I know why you're here. He says, you're supposed to be. <laughs> and then he turned back to the newspaper and ignored me for the rest of his morning coffee. And later that day, I went into my office, and on my desk chair, he had written a scripture passage about the anointing of Mary of Bethany in the Gospel of John. He had highlighted the words, she did what she, what she could. And the answer is, so should you. I grew up here in Phoenix, with the St. Mary's High School, as many of you know, and my family's been here probably for well, more than 50 years. Luis was part of a missionary legacy in this diocese and its DNA. He had been in and out of Phoenix since he was a child, and he's seen many mornings and many sunrises and sunsets on the Sonoran Desert of Phoenix. 
And he's been back in the valley consistently since 1994. Franciscans have been missionaries here from the very early days of, of the desert. And Luis, in that tradition, crossed all the cultures that intersected here on 3rd Street in Monroe. St. Mary's Grammar Schools and High Schools, a place where people served and educated and part of the landscape of a beautiful part of our country. And he brought that observant, tough missionary attitude to his footprints across this part of the city. Uh, the attitude of Marcos Denise, the first friar to show up here in the 1500s. And Jesuit Eusebio Quino, uh, who, and when we said Javier, they mixed, the Tonawata people mixed the Franciscan story of Assisi and the Francis Xavier story into one saint. And it, does, it makes perfect sense to them. Uh, Luis was in that tradition, like Friar Junipero Serra and Bonaventure Oblasser and Novatus Benzing, who built this place. Brother Fritz, who rang the bell here for, for 30 years. Father Victor Booker, Father Michael Weishow, and Ronald Colody, Father Albert Brown, and Blaise Cronin, and Brother Damien the Cook. Father Luis's life represented that older school, anchored in a broad and very pragmatic definition and tradition of church. He didn't fight about details. His line was just shut up and do it. Just do it. Don't talk about it. Don't complain about it. Just do it. Do the gospel life. It's what Francis of Assisi called us to do and what Francis the Pope calls the whole church to do as missionary disciples. I call it two by four gospel. It hits you right across the forehead and reminds you about what's important and what's not. He was born in Alamogordo, New Mexico, on June 14, 1925, and went back and forth across Arizona going to the seminary. His family was here for just one year. And that commute, I think he got to know the dusty uh, Arizona uh, landscape in his own kind of ways. He professed vows on the 11th of June in 1949 as the war was ending and was ordained a friar priest in June 8, 1952, at Mission Santa Barbara. Right afterwards, he spent what he called his first great solitude at a, a tuberculosis sanitarium uh, uh, called Monrovia Marinal Sanitarium. Right after he got ordained, he found he had tuberculosis. So he spent over a year uh, uh, in that sanitarium resting, uh, and he had nothing else to do but rest. He talked about it as, as a, a lonely time. He had and, you know, just get sent out to his first assignment was to rest in a sanitarium. He went to a number of other wonderful places, crossing back through Phoenix any number of times and slept in, in the bedroom of his new friary in 1950 in the room that is now my office. Huh? I think about it every time I go in. He was at the Franciscan Renewal Center in San Luis Rey. He had a, a steady hand in places that had problems, where there was losses or scandals. He could step in and hold the community together as he did at Franciscan Renewal Center and, and pass that institution on to someone else. After being pastor of Sacred Heart Parish and, and guardian here at St. Mary's, he, he retired. In his interview for Sarah Club a few years ago, he listed his hobbies as reading, especially Franciscan authors, music, he was a great musician and organist, and baseball. He adored it. He was on the TV watching baseball the night before he died. Huh? Uh, when we were in prayer, we couldn't find a note for music. I'd look over him and he could bring the five of us back to at least something that sounded like the artist had planned when he wrote that song. And then if we were off tune or if we did something, he sometimes you can sing a song to another melody and it works. I'd look over him feeling all proud of ourselves and he'd have his eyebrows twisted in a very unnatural direction. He loved the poor passionately, the front door, he liked the simple-minded and confused, like me. He was at home for people who wanted just to talk. He told me one day that he could listen. He didn't have anything else to give these days, so he could listen to anybody. He says, I just have no place to go. Bring him on. Praise or unnatural. He just was available to listen. His ears were the most interesting thing. He could hear so well. You know, when we fires were talking about him behind his back, he would just sometimes wander into the conversation quietly. You didn't even hear him come. And he could hear it in the hallways at night. He was our guard dog. Because he knew all our footfalls. So when any of us come in late, Father acknowledged it. And if somebody came into the house uh, who wasn't supposed to be there, he'd come out of his bedroom dressed in whatever he was dressed in to chase them away. Um, one of the things he, he, he always he always heard, he was a listener. And that, that skill both physically, uh, the nurse reminded us right after he died, we were standing over his body and whispering to one another. And before he died, you remember, every time he heard us whispering across the room, he'd raise his hand like this, he was so angry, and, and point out his ears and say, talk louder, talk louder. He, he didn't want to miss out on anything, especially stuff that, that, that had to do with his own body and his own choices. Nobody was going to make those choices for him. And that's the way he died, consciously and available to the people around us, but attentive to what was real and what was beautiful and what was good. Book of Revelations, Apocalypse, is the last book of the Bible. And John sees a beautiful vision in the middle of a praise Roman world, a new heaven and a new earth, and God dwelling in the middle, a great tragedy, even like COVID-19. This was Luis's second great solitude, because at the beginning of it, he had a nasty fall out here in front of the basilica, and broke his head open and knocked his shoulder out, and we began to see we couldn't compete with his falls. So we uh, arranged to have him move to an assisted living facility at Morningstar, and he didn't want to go. He didn't. He, uh, he was an old-fashioned friar, and he just wanted to wear his habit in the morning, and say, his, say his mass, and read the office of the friars, and answer the door. So I wanted, but we, we couldn't give it to him. We couldn't. And so he took matters into his own hands. And he'd come over three days a week. At the beginning, he was never home for meals because he always came back here. He had his own transportation. And he'd come back in three, 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 two or three times a week and hear confessions. Again, his hearing was what he could give to the church. And, and he, the day before his last fall, Friday, he did three hours of confessions right here in the back of the church. He loved hearing people's confessions. And he was a good spiritual director and a good friend. And uh, that's the, maybe the gift in this time of Francis's synodality. Maybe that's the gift 
he gives to the church as he leaves us is that gift of listening and that invitation now in a time of great crisis and division in our church and our country to just listen to each other to make a point to turn our ear and attend to what others are saying about them about their lives and their hearts about what's important and what's not and that the margins get the particular attention of the god of israel and the particular attention of the followers of saint francis then we notice at the death of a loved one their birthday changes uh, we friars uh, get a second birthday and the first one begins to disappear out of saint francis where louise is going to be buried all the friars tombstone have just their name and it says born to life and then a date and then born to eternal life and then another date and in between those two dates is an adventure and Luis lived it, lived it, and offered it here for us, born to eternal life, even in that wrestling match with Sister Death, that I think he almost won. He was wrestling, when Sister Anthony got there, she said, this man's wrestling with death, he won't, he won't go. He was 97, but he wanted to live to 102, is that like his mother? He truly wanted to live longer, and uh, wasn't going out gently into the good night. Uh, he wrestled, and wrestled, and wrestled, and he died consciously, step by step. I'd like to end uh, with Father Luis, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an old book many of you have probably read, uh, it's called Little Cather's 1927, Death Comes to the Archbishop. Remember that wonderful book most of us had to read it in high school literature classes, and it's, uh, it's, it's based in New Mexico, where Luis came from. I kept thinking about it, that, that day he died. Um, about the scene at the very last paragraph of the book, when the old archbishop with his friends gathered around is, is dying. What is it, Father? Uh, uh, one of his attendants asked, and the old archbishop began to murmur and move his hands a little bit. And then Magdalena, one of his friends, was trying to uh, help him if he were asking for something, but in reality, uh, the bishop was not there at all. He was standing in a tip-tilted green field among his native mountains, and he was trying to give consolation to a young man who was being torn apart before his very eyes by the desire to go and the necessity to stay. Isn't it true, my friends, that we're all stuck between those two places? the desire to go, and the necessity to stay. Revelations notes that the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, is a very precious spot in our stories. And Luis was attentive to both of them. Uh, he was a listener to the end, and uh, nothing else uh, mattered more to him than hearing. The nurse said, keep talking to him after he died, because his, his listening has not gone away. He prefigured a church called by Francis to be a listening church, not a judging one, not a culturally you know, fighting one, but one with hearts open and simply listening to the needs of God's holy ones. One of the signs of Elizabeth Barrett Browning to her husband at the end of his life, she said, if God choose, I shall love thee better after death. I don't know how Luis is going to love us better after death, but I expect it. I expect signs of his presence and his love for this place and the Friars of the Southwest. His family, I expect those signs to appear in many places and invite you to be attentive to them as well. He will say goodbye and he will bless us one more time because God is there among seekers and friends of the Most High. And we live in the certainty that love is stronger than death. The souls of the just, said old Goliath, are in the hands of God. They are at peace. No torment shall touch them because grace and mercy are with his holy ones and his care is with his elect. thanks and praise for you created the earth and the heavens and set the stars in their place in baptism you say, you are indeed holy O lord and all you have created rightly gives you praise for through your son our lord jesus christ by the power and working of the holy spirit you look not on our sins but on the faith of your church and graciously grant her peace and unity in accordance with your will who live and reign forever and
First of all, thank you so much for coming. Uh, there is much to tell about my brother, Luis. I'll just tell you a few little things, little things that have to do with family. My brother was very much a family man. Wherever there was a, a ceremony that had to be attended to, he was there. Uh, we had reunions in Mescalero, and uh, we'd always have a huge, huge place for him to say the Mass. So he was always with family. Uh, he was with family, uh, whether he knew immediate family or family that he had gotten to know in the different places that he has been. My brother and I and my mother, we went to Europe for his 25th anniversary, and it was an experience, I can tell you. He was uh, not too sure about how to load, buses, uh, load suitcases on buses and things like that. But one of his favorite things was his being able to say Mass in Assisi. And uh, my mother, of course, was very, very pleased that he was able to have the Mass in his regular place in Assisi. He went to my 50th anniversary when I, in uh, the Immaculate Heart community. For my 50th anniversary, he attended that. And one of the things about my brother that uh, sometimes I would like to, for him to go, we would like to go to a show or something like that. And uh, I would never get very upset because he never wanted to do those things. And I had another priest friend, Father Fitzpatrick, who said to me one time, Rosalina, your brother is not a Baldonado. He's a Franciscan. <laughs> And this is really true. My brother has always been a Franciscan. And uh, so these are some of the things that, that I remember about him. He was very giving, and especially for those of you who are here, because so many of you would bring food to him, you know, his favorite enchiladas and things like that. So for that, I am very grateful to all of you, and thank you, because you took very, very good care of him. There are some, he was, had a very wonderful sense of humor. And I'd like for you to hear my niece, some of the things that we experienced while he was in the hospital. Yes, my tio's humor never um, left him, even to the end. I was with him for four days in the hospital, and um, he was always trying to escape from his bed. And um, so one time he brought the nurse in, and he said, I need to go home, I need to go home. And the nurse said, you can't, you're not well. And he said, but you don't understand. This is about theology. <laughs> I don't know why. And then another night, the nurses came in to put mitts on his hands because he kept pulling out his little wires, and they were putting the mitts on him, and he said, please don't do that, please don't do that. And then he, they put the mitts on him, and he said, this is useless oppression. <laughs> And then another time, um, the nurse looked at him and he said to my tia, he said, who are these ladies? And she pointed to us and he said, they know who they are. So, so I'm going to miss him terribly. Um, he had a fabulous sense of humor and a great wit, for sure. <laughs> we enjoyed very, very much. And my, uh, my greatest joy was having Cecilia with me because we were able to uh, enjoy him. One of the things about my brother was that he was very giving. And during the time he was in the hospital, there was this particular nurse that, you know, had to poke him for this or push him for that or move him this way or move the other way. After my brother passed away, she came into the room and she said to me, may I hug him? And she took him and hugged him. And I thought to myself, you were the one that kept poking him, you know? <laughs> And she was just very, very grateful for, for him. And so I think that this is the thing that I will remember my brother for. He and I never had it all exactly right. You know, my brother was very, very uh, much in charge. I think all of you know that. And Rosalina was also always in charge. So we, <laughs> so this one time that, um, you know, I, I took a wheelchair to him because I was concerned that he had the one that he had to push. And so I took it to him and he was just very upset with me. I didn't tell you to bring that chair, he said. And this is the way he always was. He wanted to be the one to make the final decisions. And I tell you that this was what he did at the very end. Sister Antoinette, who's a, a Franciscan, was with me also. And we noticed that his breathing was very, very hard. And so we went up to him, and Antoinette said to him, uh, are you sure you want to keep these on? And he looked at her and looked at me and said, no. Again, Luis made the final decision. We didn't make the decision. He decided it was time for him to go to his God. Thank you. And just before we go into our recommendation of the soul, our brother Luis, uh, on behalf of Father David, our provincial, the friars of Santa Barbara, I want to thank you, the family, first, the staff here at uh, St. Mary's, our brothers who share the life with him, our brother priest, our parishioners, and all of you who knew Father Luis, thank you. Thank you for being here. In a very special way, uh, thank you, Bishop Thomas and Eduardo, for, for being with us. Your presence is appreciated. Uh, and we thank you for being here with us. Thank you. So let us then go into the commendation of our brother Luis.